when you're young, bad reviews are fine because somebody noticed. When you're old, they hurt. There's no good way you can get a bad review when you're older and you've had a career for a long time. The snark, you know, I never read it till I came out against Trump, so it got picked up on all the right-wing sites. And I looked at the comments. I was shocked because usually they're nice about me. They were saying, faggot. That all that. It made me laugh almost. I was like, oh, my God. Look at him. He looks like a corpse. I mean, the meanest stuff they wrote. And I was just stupefied because I've never read that kind of stuff about me. And I always said about reviews, you read the good ones twice, the bad ones once, and put them all away and never look at them again. Some of his underground films from the 60s and 70s were once banned for their bad taste, but American film director John Waters, also known as the Pope of Trash, always believed that, quote, being accepted is the worst thing that can happen to a creative person. Today, however, he's lauded as a national treasure, invited to give commencement speeches at universities and receive lifetime achievement awards around the world. The director of Pink Flamingos, starring his friend, the actor and drag queen Divine, and of Hairspray, which later turned into the hit Broadway musical, still lives in his hometown of Baltimore. Now at 73, Waters is as prolific as ever, with an ongoing stand-up comedy show, This Filthy World, new non-fiction book, Mr. Know-It-All, The Tarnished Wisdom of a Filth Elder, and his first novel about a woman who steals suitcases at airports, currently in the works. I'm Daphne Carnesis, and I met up with John Waters at the Thessaloniki Film Festival in Greece for the big interview. John Waters, welcome to The Big Interview. Thank you. While you've been here, you performed your stand-up show, This Filthy World. It was fantastic. It was a great audience. And it so amazes me that I can come from a foreign country and do the show in English. And I talk fast. There's a lot of slang in it. But even people in America don't know what I'm talking about. Kathleen Turner saw the show and she said to me, darling, I don't know what half that stuff is you're talking about. And my sister said the same thing. The gay stuff, I don't know what you even mean when you're talking about it. But the audience last night understood it, and it was amazing. And we had a translator simultaneous that must be so hard to do. At the same time, I heard it was great. And it just amazes me that I can come around America, we're so stupid, we can't even speak English correctly. And everybody can speak another language. In a country where I'm here, as far as I see, there's no gun problem, there's not an opioid problem. It's amazing to me. Because we have so many of those problems that are so out of control in America now. It's kind of really amazing. I just was in Australia. It was the same thing. No gun problem. No, yeah, it's amazing. Do you take that into account when you're facing an audience from different cultures because you've performed the show all over the world? But the same with your films. Is it something that you take into account? They always had foreign audiences, but bad taste is universal and international. That's definitely been proven. But... More what I say now when I do my show, which is always being rewritten, it's completely different all the time. And I have a Christmas show that's totally different too. But I always try to do a lot of research and put in Greek jokes, which I did last night, I forgot one of them. But to put in things that have just happened here, because I think that's good to put in the name of the local porn theater that no one would talk about, that kind of thing. So I I think um, I do spend a lot of time preparing for it, and I think the audience was just amazing last night. They, They really connected to it and made me feel incredibly welcome. You're also leading a workshop for young directors while you're here. I'm just curious, what's the one thing that you wish you'd been taught? Well, it's very different because when I was young, you couldn't have made the movies that I made. They wouldn't have allowed you to make that in film school. Today they would. So it's very, very different. Is to get your hands on all the equipment. Get your hands on all the free stuff that you won't be able to get if you're not at film school. 
To me, school is you go because you don't know what you want to be. So you figure that out. That's the point of school. I always knew what I want to be, but they wouldn't let me. So I had a very bad experience in school. I got thrown out of most of the school. I had no degrees. But I get, they give me now um, honorary degrees at colleges when I do the commencement speeches, which is amazing. I got thrown out of every college. I guess if you just stick around long enough, they eventually embrace it. Things have changed so much. I don't think I've changed, but I think humor has changed. And I think that is very, very important. I think American humor now is just the kind of stuff I always did. And uh, with Trump, he's ruined the word ugly. You can't even, nothing so bad it's bad anymore. Nothing so bad it's good anymore with Trump. I mean, it's not camp how he decorates the White House. It's, his hair isn't camp. It's just bad. And you spoke there about how you're now giving commencement speeches. And I think this is something that you spoke about in your most recent book, Mr. Know-It-All, The Tarnished Wisdom of a Filfelder. This notion of acceptance that you didn't really see coming and was kind of the opposite to what you had experienced in your earlier years. What do you put that down to in a nutshell? How did it happen and did you see it coming? How did it feel on a personal level? I saw it coming gradually over the years where film festivals would have me and... uh, and I got started getting these awards and stuff, which was, that was only recently, in the last 10 years. And I think it's because I lasted, and somehow I negotiated my way through Hollywood, and I don't have any complaints about how Hollywood treated me, and I don't think I'm mean-spirited. I make a fun of things I like, the art world, the movie industry, fashion, but I like all those things. I think you can be mean, and it's real funny for 10 minutes. It's not funny for 70 minutes. Now, I'm mean about Trump. But I'd try to be funny, too. And in every city, when I did the last tour, I would say, okay, I know there must be somebody for Trump here. Stand up and say something as funny, hatefully, about our candidates as we did. We will love to get, and people would applaud that. My audience would. Only one person ever stood up in one city, and he said, he was drunk, and he said, I hate Native American Indians. I said, oh, God, even Trump would hate you. That was the weakest thing. That's all you got? (laughs) You said that being accepted was the worst thing that could happen to a creative person. And I think what, I mean, you'll tell me if I'm right, but what you sort of meant by that is that it ceases to become obvious what you're going up against. But don't you think that the fact that you're accepted is kind of a sign of of success? Because it means that... Because it means that people have embraced your messages, your characters, yes. your stories, and therefore there's nothing to rebel against. The worst thing is if you're accepted right in the beginning. The very first thing you do is accepted, and you've caused no trouble, and it's instantly, you're not going to last so long. In the beginning, really, somebody has to like you, but it helps if most people don't. And you can use that negative. It's harder to do that today. When I was young, I based a career on bad reviews. You can't do that anymore. The critics are too smart to give you the great bad quotes, like the worst film, the most repulsive film in film history. Who wouldn't put that on their box cover? (laughs) Today, they wouldn't give you that. They'd be too smart to do that. I mean, on that point, I think one of the things that we love and draws us to your films is that they shock us. I mean, sure, they definitely make us laugh as well, but they make us feel uncomfortable. And I can definitely attest to that. I recently watched Pink Flamingos with my mom, and it was oh, yeah, God. it was definitely not comfortable. But I she wanted know. to see it. She heard I was going to interview you, and she said, "I want to watch Pink Flamingos." Oh my God! So my brothers did. and sisters always said to me, "I'm not sitting with mom at any of your movies, and when you give those talks, I'm not sitting anywhere near her." And my mother told me the worst was at a premiere or something. In the most hideous scene, everybody else would turn around and look at her to see what her reaction was. So it made it even more embarrassing. 
But I'm just curious, what shocks you? What makes you feel uncomfortable? But things that aren't funny, like racism and Trump and stupid romantic comedies and sequels to 12 movies that are exactly the same. But Forrest Gump shocked me because I hated it so much. But you know what? They don't care about that. No one cares that I hated Forrest Gump because it was a huge hit. But today what shocks me is not good things, you know? When people try too hard, it's not funny either, you know? I think the Joker shocked me in a way that it was good, I thought. And it was maybe it is a dangerous movie, which I find delightful that there could be a movie still that could be dangerous in a good way. One of the criticisms of Joker, and I, I guess, you know, you have a lot of violence and gore in your films as well, and a lot of people are sort of making connection and saying that as we're seeing violence on screen, could that perpetuate or even lead to violence off screen what, what's your view on the that do you think that is the real crazy people can watch a disney film and think a tree was talking to them and told them to kill somebody if you're that stupid that you watch a movie and then well because they don't no I, I don't believe that really happens too much unless you're schizophrenic or something and i think that's not the movie's fault really i i don't like real violence i hate it when there's tea even on youtube or anything want to see somebody i saw today walk into a plate glass window no i don't want to see that the famous thing where that newswoman killed herself on the air i don't want to see that i don't want to see real violence at all Fake violence, I think the end of Quentin Tarantino's movie was joyous violence and hilarious and hopeful because it would have let Sharon Tate live. So, um, I just ruined it. But um, (laughs) No, and I don't want to. It's been out a long time. But you still don't know what happens at the end. And it's really a good ending. So that kind of violence, I think, is fine. I don't mind violence in movies. Even the torture porn ones, they're so over the top that they're kind of funny almost. It's so ridiculous. But no, I don't want to see one bit of real violence. I would turn my head. Even on the news when they show some real horror. I don't want to see real violence. That's not entertaining to me. What does political correctness mean to you? Do you feel that you're under more pressure not to cross certain lines? No, I think I am politically correct. I think everything I say basically is politically correct. And I know that because I question liberals just as much, which I am certainly a liberal, I certainly question the values of the gay community, I make jokes about them just as much. So I think I'm fair, I don't think I'm mean, and I think that I can go that way. No one ever seems to get mad at what I say. And it's questionable, certainly knows it's questionable some of the things I say when I purposely ask politically incorrect questions, like why is gay music so bad? Everybody freezes, then a third of the audience applauds because they know what I mean. <laughs> and so, so it's saying things that make people uncomfortable at the same time, but it's said as humor, I think. Yeah. As we were saying before, you definitely use shock as your tool, both in your films, in your stand-up, maybe you'll use it in your upcoming novel, we'll see. Yeah. But do you also feel that you have certain pressure to uphold your reputation as someone who does the unexpected? I know that you, you, you hitchhiked from Baltimore to San Francisco. You also, which you wrote about in your book, Classic, you also wrote about your experience recently taking LSD. I mean, are these things that you would have done anyway, or do you feel... No, I always say, what a man has to do to get a book deal these days. Christ, you got to take LSD when you're 70. And the publisher (laughs) said, be careful. I said, careful? If I was careful, I wouldn't do it, would I? I wouldn't hitchhike across America either if I was careful. It's not the most level-headed thing to do. But I like to dare myself to just see, I don't have to do it again, I'm not going to take LSD again. But I know I could. I know that if I really got stuck, I I could hitchhike easily and get somewhere. So those kind of things are to surprise myself in a way. 
imagine people always, they don't want to do it themselves, but they kind of want to hear what it was like to do it. Mm. And that's how you get people to read a book. I want to talk a bit about Baltimore, where you grew up and you've spoken about your, your childhood a bit and you had very supportive parents, even if they didn't always agree with the content of your films. Yeah. You still live there. I'm just curious, what, what's the best thing about living in Baltimore for you? The best thing is the airport's near. <laughs> and it's also a city that is still cheap enough to have a Bohemia, that there is a big music scene there. It's still cheap compared to any other city. It's not that hard to get to New York from there. It's close to Washington. It's, uh, it's a city that has a good sense of humor about themselves. They can make fun of themselves, but let them do it first. Don't try to come in and criticize like Trump did when he said, what a disgusting place filled with rats and roaches. Yeah, but we, we like rats and roaches. I had in Hairspray, Ricky Lake kicks a rat off her foot for the first time she's in love. She wore roaches on her dress when she was crowned Miss Auto Show at the end. So we take what other cities might be embarrassed about and turn it into, we work with it. And Baltimore is a dangerous city. I mean, the, the shootings there are unbelievable, the violence there. But it's the problem is that no one leaves their own neighborhood. That's, you can't be a racist if you travel. That's what they should just sentence racists to travel. That's, that's not really very practical. You're going to Paris. But still, if you travel all the time, you can't be a racist because you see all the different way that people live. If you only stay in your own neighborhood and never meet anyone else like you, you're afraid of everybody else. And racism is a ba based on fear, I think. You said that when you were growing up, you went to lots of protests and riots. I loved a riot. You could always get laid at a riot. Now, I don't know if you can today because they wear all that Antifa stuff. There's too many layers of clothes. It would be hard to have sex dressed as Antifa. <laughs> what would be the one thing that you would protest against now? Guns. You know, I think that is the most terrible thing that's in America now, but it's guns and it's... It's black-on-black -black violence a lot. It's, they're killing each other, you know? In my neighborhood, I'm not gonna get shot. It's pretty, I, it could happen, but I doubt it will. The neighborhood, it's, it's a problem. It's a huge problem that everybody has guns. I don't think anybody should have a gun. I don't have the right to have a gun. Why would I want one? I couldn't protect myself with it. I'd shoot myself accidentally when I struggled to get it from under the pillow. I'd shoot myself loading it, probably. And I don't think they're masculine or butch or anything. To me, it just means you're an idiot if you like guns. <laughs> Why would you like them so much? You also wrote something really interesting about how the younger generation are somewhat confused even when it comes to things like gender and sexual orientation. You know, they can't... But they like that they go No, they control. want that, certainly. There is no such thing as a little boy or a little girl anymore. It's, it can be anything. It can be a little girl that becomes a boy and then changes her mind and go back. It can be a little boy that's half boy, half whatever. And that is the new reality. It shocks me a little. There's that many people that were trapped in the wrong body. It seems like now in rich kids' art schools, half the students are trans. Is it a class issue? Has it only happened to rich people? So it is new, and it's thing that everybody's learning. Do you think that it characterizes our generation more broadly, the sense of confusion, that things beyond just gender and sexual orientation aren't black and white anymore, it's not good, or good and bad? But that's good, I think, that it's not black and white, that a woman can be masculine. You know, all that, I think, is fine, because the word masculine has almost become a dirty word. When is it good to be masculine? When do you call someone masculine? 
in a positive way, unless they were once a woman. Do you sense that things have shifted? I mean, it must feel different being gay in America at the moment than in the 60s and 70s. It does, but it helps if you're wealthy. It doesn't, if you're poor and gay in America, it can still be, you can still be really hassled and it can be terrible. It is a class issue. I actually think straight people have more prejudice than a rich kid's art school than gay people. They are guilty they're straight, <laughs> almost. Yeah. But still, like a gay march, I go to one in New York, it's just straight people showing their acceptance. There's no gay people. They've been to that years ago. But then in little towns and little other places, we need those gay parades. We, we do need that. The visibility is, is always good. I wanted to ask you about negative reviews, which you're no stranger to. God, no, I built a career on negative reviews. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've talked about the fact that you use some of them to your advantage. It helped you come up with the idea of odorama that you used in polyester and the smelling cards. Did, did you ever care about the bad reviews? And do you think that now with social media where everyone's kind of hiding behind a screen and has an opinion, there's even more pressure on, on people? To me, reviews? when you're young, bad reviews are fine because somebody noticed. When you're old, they hurt. There's no good way you can get a bad review when you're older and you've had a career for a long time. The snark, you know, I never read it till I came out against Trump for saying stuff about Baltimore, and I went on, so it got picked up on all the right-wing sites, and I looked at the comments. I was shocked, because usually they're nice about me. They were saying, ah, faggot, and all that. It made me laugh almost. I was like, oh my God, look at him. He looks like a corpse. I mean, the meanest stuff they wrote. And I was just stupefied, because I've never read that kind of stuff about me. So I read it for a while. I didn't, you know, look at it that long. And I always said about reviews, you read the good ones twice, the bad ones once, and put them all away and never look at them again. But I don't trust people who say they don't read their reviews. I know people who do it. I said, how can you not, if you got a rave review in the New York Times that morning, don't your friends tell you? I mean, how can you not know that that happened? So I think the reviews, even a negative review can say something that is a little bit true, that you, rem you remember the bad ones first, believe me. You don't remember the good ones, you remember the bad ones, because they're the ones that you have to act like it doesn't matter. Yeah. What's a typical day like for you at the moment? I know you're writing your novel. Is it very different from your filmmaking days? No, it's the same. I mean, I get up Monday to Friday and I write every morning, 8 to 12. In the afternoon, I sell it in some way. Before I came here, I was just finishing writing my Christmas show that I'd go home and I'd come back. But I had to write this show for Greece. I, had to, I was in Australia. I had to write an Australian version. I have a horror version that I just played at a horror convention. I go to Birmingham after here. I have Birmingham jokes that I did all the research with. I haven't put them in, but I know where they're going, and I'll rehearse them on the plane going there. I did want to ask you whether you had, we were talking before about you leading this young director's workshop, and I wanted to ask you, did you have a, a mental figure, someone that you can pinpoint specifically? A mentor to me, when I was young, hmm, a mentor, I, I think that I learned everything from reading Variety, which was the show business paper about how the business worked. And certainly I would say in Mr. No and I'd talk about Bob Shea, who was the head of New Line Cinema, who was the first distribution big I got for Pink Flamingos, and he did many of my movies right up to the end. And I give him great credit. He was difficult. We had fights, but still, he said yes. He said the green light to all those movies. And if you look at some of them, it's amazing. No one else would have given me the green light. So I learned everything through New Line Cinema. I went around the world with them. I promoted my movies in every country. So he was a mentor, definitely. And Sarah Risher, who worked there for a long time, was a mentor. And the people that worked with me, that came up, Pat Moran, who did all the casting, Vincent Perenio, who did the sets, to all my movies 
things he went on. He did The Wire. He did certainly Van Smith who did the costumes and makeup. It was amazing how much he contributed to it. So the real mentors were the people that allowed me to keep going, that said yes, that didn't freak out, and 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 joined us against the establishment that hated us and laughed about it because. We beat them to the punch. Critics used to say to me, how can you, you beat us to the punch. You called them trash before we could. Yes, I did beat you to the punch. Actually, yeah, I, I was going to say that I think your acting troupe, you know, the actors yeah. who were your friends, Divine and everyone else that you worked with, even though they were your peers, it almost feels like they were your mentors in a way. They were, and they also, fans liked, they grow old with Ming Stoll. A lot of people grew up seeing her in every one of my movies, you know. That's why I took LSD with her. <laughs> that we were friends for 50 years. And a lot of those people, they have been friends for 50 years now. And I think that's incredibly important as you get older to have old friends that, we don't talk about showbiz all the time. That's not what we talk about. You had a carte blanche to pick 10 films. I saw it was a real mix. Some of them were documentaries, feature films. Some had bad reviews, some had good reviews. Some were B-list, as, as yeah. you called them. What, what sort of criteria, I guess, do you use? What qualities catch your eye and make you want to watch a film? I think all the films I picked were completely original, and they startled me as I watched them. Some were so bad they were perfect, like Boom, the Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton movie. Some of them are very obscure that most people, I'm sure, probably have never heard of. This documentary tickled about the porno business based on people getting tickled and this scary man that runs the whole empire. And who stole, who took Johnny? There's, there's a, lot, a lot of them are documentaries. So to me, they're just movies that were incredibly original that, I, that startled me and astonished me. What's Camp John Waters? I heard you talking about Camp John Waters. Is, they've had this is the fourth year. I think it's the was it? Actually, it's the fourth year. It's over four days. It's in Connecticut in a completely restored summer camp, and 500 campers go. They live there. They live as characters in my films. They have like ugly makeovers. They have arts and crafts. They made hate bracelets. It's <laughs> hilarious. They have costume contests. They have meet and greets. The counselor last year was Pat Moran and also Ricky Lake. Tracy Lord's done it. This year we got a good one coming, I can't tell. So it is astonishing. People get married at it. People come from all over the world. People from Japan, all ages, all sexualities. A girl last year asked if she could eat a dog turd in front of me. I was, oh, she did. It was a joyous moment. She had it. She had it in a little deli tray. And it was like a sample. It was very scientific. Did you watch that? No, I didn't watch, but you can watch it. It's on YouTube. (laughs) It's on Instagram, I think. I never watched it. The fans are great, and they see each other all year. They hang out. So we call it Jonestown with a happy ending. How do you think you're, you know, because you always interacted with your audience, and I think reading your book, you were quite protective of them, especially in the early days, that, you know, despite what other people might have thought, your audience was always there. How do you think your audience has changed? I don't think it has changed. I think it's gotten wider. I think, obviously, last night, I'm in a foreign country I've never even been to before, and it was sold out. So it was... And there was a standing ovation, I might ask. (laughs) Well, that's because I'm old. But, well, I'm still standing, right? But the people were just they're all ages they're all sexual i think i have a very mixed audience i mean some of the young people they weren't even born when i made my last movie pretty soon that's gonna be it's just people that are united with a sense of humor and anger but not bitter and finally are you gonna tell us your secret where do you get your clothes it's no secret where i get my clothes mostly i wear come to garcon izzy miyaki walter van Donk, 
and Dries von Nobson. Yes. And Gap underpants, <laughs> Land's End turtlenecks. That's about it. John Waters, thank you very much. All right, thank you. My many thanks to John Waters. That's it for this season of The Big Interview. We'll be back in the spring of 2020. Make sure to subscribe to never miss an episode. The Big Interview was produced and edited by Yolene Goffin and recorded by Bill Luti. Special thanks also to our studio team, Jack Dewars, Louis Allen, Nora Hole, Nathan Cooper, Miles Bloomsom, Maylee Evans, Sam Howard, Kenya Scarlett, Bill Luti and Sam Impey. I'm Daphne Carnesis. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.